Good afternoon. Uh, well done for making it through the, the rain. I know what's happening out there. I suppose it's May. Never shed a clout till May be out, my grandmother would have said. I'm not quite sure what it meant. Um, so I'm delighted this afternoon we've got Tom Standage, uh, who is a regular friend and speaker here at the Institute, uh, here to talk to us. Tom is Deputy Editor of The Economist, someone who has overseen and driven a lot of The Economist's digital expansion over recent years. And of course, The Economist is one of the most successful global journalism brands uh, uh, at the moment. Uh, if you haven't seen The Economist on Snapchat, I recommend it. It's the only reason I would go to Snapchat, but I'm sure others of you may have other reasons to go there. Um, but it's, uh, it's really a, a, a great example of how a brand like The Economist can adapt to uh, different audiences and different platforms. And I'm sure Tom's going to talk about that, among many other things. So Tom, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, so I, have, I always have the same title for this talk, but I always talk about different things, which is good um, because Essentially, I think I should focus on the things that um, news organisations generally are worrying about, and I can tell you a bit about how The Economist is responding to these various worries. Um, but in doing so, I, I think um, I can possibly illuminate you know, the, the broader uh, debate around each of these worries. So the things I thought I might talk about today were um, sort of business models and what do we do as advertising goes away. Um, the rise of third-party platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, um, uh, and Snapchat, and there are more and more of them, and how do we decide, um, how should new news organisations decide uh, which platforms to go onto and how much to put onto those platforms? Um, and then thirdly, something that's obviously come up the agenda a lot in the past year, which is fake news, and um, I have a, a couple of slightly uh, unusual perspectives on that. Um, but I suppose the logical place to start is with, with the business models and the big question that's been hanging over the industry for the last you know, 15 years. Um, I think it's becoming more and more apparent, uh, I think Trump is going to be a recurring thread through all of this as well, it's becoming more and more apparent that um, it, it, we're, we're seeing publications where the proportion of revenue from circulation is now, and subscriptions, is now overtaking uh, the proportion of revenue from advertising. And that's largely because advertising has collapsed by such a lot, but it's also because... Um, a number of publications have recognised that uh, focusing on this old-fashioned, straightforward method of you ask the customers to give you money and they give you money and you give them a thing in return uh, and the customer is the, is the reader, not the advertiser, um, is, you know, there's a, there's a, it's a great model. Um, we switched, it turns out, that the switch to the advertising-led model began with the New York Sun um, in 1835, and it was the first uh, newspaper where the majority of the revenue came from advertisers. This was quite a difficult model to bootstrap, and I'm going to come back to the sum later. But essentially, uh, up to that point, newspapers cost about six, 6p in this country and 6 cents um, in the US. And what the sum did was it sold for 1 cent. And it actually cost more than 1 cent to print and distribute a copy of the sum, but um, it sold enough advertising um, and because it was so cheap, it, it, um, it reached a larger audience, which meant that advertisers were more inclined to buy space in it. And that was the sort of the beginning of the model that came to an end in 2008, where, and it had a very good run, um, where the majority of the revenue comes from the advertisers, not the subscribers. At the time of the Sun, the biggest newspaper in the world um, was the Times of London, had a circulation of about 10,000. Um, the biggest newspaper in America was the Courier and Inquirer in New York. Uh, the New York Times hadn't started yet, didn't start until the 1850s. And the Sun quickly went from nothing to a circulation of about 20,000 in a couple of years. Um, and 
the way it bootstrapped the whole model, because obviously you can't get the advertisers on board until you've got the readers, but you can't get the readers until you, well, you're losing money while you build up the readership. Um, so the founder, um, Benjamin Day, had a rather clever trick, which was that he, when he started The Sun, he put adverts from lots of advertisers which he'd stolen from other newspapers into the first editions. And then he went to all the advertisers individually and said, um, I've just launched this new newspaper and I, um, I got all these advertisers on board and I didn't have time to talk to you, so I've put your ad in for you um, for free, but uh, if you wouldn't mind if, you know, now paying for it, that would be great. And he told this same story to all of the advertisers and thus bootstrapped the entire business model, which uh, the industry then ran on for 100 whatever, 180 years. Anyway, that, that has, that, you know, there's a problem now, which is that the incremental ad dollars are going to Facebook and Google. And, and uh, there's a deeper problem than that, which is that basically the kinds of adverts that um, news organisations have to offer are no longer the kinds of adverts that advertisers want. They don't just want... Uh, I mean, there are a few advertisers that do, so um, I should probably get a helpful pop out. Oh, excuse me. Uh, where's a copy of The Economist? Uh, so we do have some ads in here, but you know the kinds of advertisers who want to buy that back page. There's Oracle, so they they quite like buying this, and then watch manufacturers are quite keen. Um, we don't get a lot of, um, well, in fact, we don't get any um, fashion advertising in the Economist. But you know, fashion advertisers very much like uh, glossy pages. Car ads look really really nice on a, a glossy page, um, but there really aren't that many. You know, for for most advertisers, buying a particular audience or micro targeting a particular area on. Um, on Facebook or Google makes an awful lot more sense. And so ultimately, that's why the, the, uh, the advertising revenue is migrating away. Um, and I think, as well as emphasizing that, you know, that means we have to go back to the previous model of, of circulation and subscription-based uh, uh, approaches, I think, I mean, I'll come on to this in a minute, but the, um, there is, there is very, a very widespread perception in the industry that the advertising revenue that's going to Facebook and Google that used to go to news publications is revenue to which they are sort of, they have a God-given right. And it's kind of Google and Facebook's fault that their revenue has gone away. And therefore, it's Google and Facebook's job to fix the problem. Uh, and I think this is, uh, you wouldn't believe how widespread this view is. Um, and so when Facebook comes up with something like instant articles, that is seen in some quarters as, oh, well, you know, this is Facebook trying to do its bit to provide revenue for, for publishers, um, but are they doing a good enough job? Is it possible for us to sustain ourselves? And then when it's not, shock horror, then that's sort of Facebook being unreasonable. And, um, and I, you know, I really can't emphasize enough how it is not the job of Facebook and Google to fix the business model of the, of the newspaper industry. I mean, it's just, you know, that is a very, but you'd be surprised how many, um, how many times I run into that uh, unspoken uh, assumption uh, in discussions about this sort of thing. Anyway, um, going back to the circulation model, I think, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't work for everyone. There are certain characteristics that you need to have um, in order to be able to um, get people to pay. You need to have news that isn't the same as what everyone else has, so it can't be commodity reporting. It has to differentiate itself in some way. There isn't a single answer on how you do it, and the, uh, the people who run the, um, what's it called, Piano, which is the um, paywall company, the provider of paywall software, um, they had this very interesting experiment that they've done where they looked at lots of regional US papers where they put paywalls in and they asked the question, you know, what, what in each area was the kind of content that people um, de decided was the thing they really couldn't do without? Um, and in many cases it was local sports coverage. That's something that AP and Reuters aren't doing. It's something that you haven't got 100 copies of on, uh, on Google News. 
Um, in some cases, it'll be that. In other cases, you know, it may be that you're you have. A, I mean, I've subscribed to a couple of specialist publications in technology, um, and you know, that's that's a, a, another very valid model. And then the other big problem here is that essentially we don't need as many newspapers because where they used to have regional monopolies, they now compete internationally. Um, and then we have this chap here who has actually done the news, news industry a great favour because when, um, when you, you can't be sure where your news is coming from, you do get a, when you have so much fake news uh, floating around, you have a flight to quality and a flight to quality brands. And we and other publications have definitely seen a Trump bump. Uh, if you look at the New York Times and the Washington Post, I mean, I personally subscribed to both of them in the past year. Uh, and partly it's because, you know, I want to support them in doing their work because, you know, no, no one else is going to investigate Trump's ties to Russia and someone's got to do it. And what we as individuals can, you know, if we want to, if we want to get to the bottom of that story, whatever it happens to be, uh, actually giving money to those uh, news organizations is, uh, you know, is a very good way of doing it. And uh, clearly, a lot of people are, are thinking those ways. Actually, it's interesting, if you look at the New York Times numbers, the number of digital subscribers has shot up, but the, the amount of subscription revenue has only gone up by 3%. So that tells you that they are taking this opportunity to sign up subscribers uh, on very heavily discounted subscriptions. But the point is, they're getting people into the habit of paying. And um, they are now at you know more than 2 million, I think, um, on their digital stuff. I mean, they're doing, or they've picked up 2 million. Uh, they're doing extremely well anyway, and they are more than 50% of their revenue coming from. Um, circulation now. So it, 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 it can work for publications big and small, um, and it is working, and the fact that the uh, advertising revenue is going somewhere else is something we all just have to get used to, and you know, there do seem to be a few sites that can survive on ad revenue alone. Um, one that springs to mind is The Verge, which is a technology site that I sometimes read, but you know that's because you've got a very nice business model on the side of that kind of site where you've got affiliate revenue coming from Amazon where I go and read a review of the video game, I click to buy the game and they get a cut from Amazon for having referred me as a customer. And in fact, if I'm on Amazon and I buy uh, you know, other stuff while I'm on there, they get a cut of that too. Uh, this is why the New York Times bought the Wirecutter uh, earlier this year because the Wirecutter, which has this lovely, you know, you want to buy a TV or a smartphone or any product, any electronics or other consumer product, um, you go to the wire cutter and just say what's the best model and they'll say this one or this one or this one um, and if you buy through the site then you get a cut and that was something that the New York Times thought was worth paying 30 million dollars for um, so anyway revenues post advertising they do exist um, I've touched on this question of the role of third party platforms and, and uh, uh, so most immediately they are not um, the answer to the you know our business model is broken, please will you fix it, Google or Facebook. And even if they were, even if it was the case <coughs> that you could get enough advertising revenue from, say, Facebook instant articles, that would still be in a very, that would still put you in a very precarious position. Um, so we've, we've seen in the past couple of months a sort of growing backlash against instant articles. And it's because publishers have concluded that the deal that they're getting from Facebook isn't generous enough. Uh, Facebook increased the number of ads you could put in an instant article um, post and there seemed to be you know, dreams at the beginning of all of this last year that um, you might make more money as a publisher from an article appearing on instant articles than you would from the same article appearing on your own website because you'd have a larger addressable audience, uh, it would load faster, and it would you know, have more ad slots in it. Amazingly, that turns out not to be true, but even if it had been, um, you know, Facebook at any time could have changed the terms of engagement and said, well, that's all fine, but um, you seem to be making quite a lot of money from this, so we'd like to run uh, we'd like to give you slightly less of it. Uh, so that would have just been sort of mortgaging our futures to, to those platforms. 
Um, that said, so that makes it sound like I'm very opposed to instant articles. I think it's terrible. But actually, if you look on Facebook, we are, you know, the Economist is putting articles into instant articles. And this is because as a publisher, you don't have to put everything in there. You can put a selection. So we put sort of 20 stories a week in there out of, you know, 120. Um, and that means those stories, you know, they get read on Facebook instead of people clicking through and reading them on economist.com. Um, which now looks much nicer than it did a year ago and loads much faster. Let's see, let's hope it loads something quickly there you are, so that's, uh, So it's using a technology called React, which is actually made by Facebook, um, but it's an open source JavaScript framework and um, just generally we've, we've, uh, we've caught up with the state of the art with this, with this website in the, uh, in the past six months, which, uh, which I'm very pleased that we finally done. It's finally responsive properly and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, um, so you know, we do have ads on here, um, but advertising is not our primary business model. We're expecting advertising to continue to decline. Um, we're just managing that decline. So our interest in going on, onto Facebook is not to make money from advertising. It's um, to expose more people to our content, um, to improve how our content that does link to our website improves, uh, so how that content performs on Facebook's platform. So the, the Facebook algorithm likes you to do certain things. And one of the things it likes you to do is, um, I mean, it doesn't explicitly say that it likes you to post instant articles, but if you post instant articles, people are more likely to click on them because they can see that they'll load faster, and therefore they engage with your content, and the more they engage with your content, the more likely other bits of your content, which includes links back to your own site, are to be shown to people on the platform. So it's kind of table stakes that you, uh, you do that sort of thing. Um, and the same is true of video. So you know, having some video, we have more and more video in the mix now, um, is useful because um, it, it boosts your engagement on Facebook, which subsequently boosts your, engage, your engagement with the stuff that links back to your site. So our um, approach to all of this, and this is how this connects back to the kind of subscription-based model, our view of these platforms is they are not ways to make money. They are ways to make people aware of our content and drive them to our site where we can offer them a subscription. And the, our website is the, is the single largest source of subscriptions for us. And um, essentially, you know, we drive people there from Facebook, from Twitter, um, and any other, other platform. Uh, you can't whistle a cow, but then you have these other platforms like Snapchat and Instagram where it's worth being um, because they have enormous audiences and people will become aware of you on those platforms and then they may be more inclined to seek you out on, on other platforms. So for us, this is all not about driving advertising revenue or driving you know, um, raw sort of views of, of the content on those platforms. It's about driving awareness so that we can send people to our, uh, fill the top of the funnel as the, um, as the marketing people say, so we can send people to our own sites where we can monetize them through subscriptions. Um, and that's the, that's the approach we have there. Snapchat has been the, the big addition to this um, roster for us in the past year. Um, interestingly, with Snapchat, we do have um, significant advertising revenue on there. Uh, so we do actually come out ahead um, in advertising. But the main appeal for us there um, is that, so, it, so in other words, there's no net cost to us to being on Snapchat. What's interesting about Snapchat, it's interesting for us in two ways. The first is that the audience is much younger and much more female than our existing audience. And we do need to reach out to not just um, women as well as men, but also just to younger people, um, because we, we want them to be our future audience. The second big interesting thing about Snapchat is it's a, um, I did an interview with Neiman Lab in 2015, where I sort of said that um, I mentioned in passing, I thought, I couldn't imagine what the economist would look like on Snapchat Discover. And the CEO of Snapchat, who came to visit the office at the end of that year, um, said, oh no, I think the economist would be great on Discover. I wish I could show you on here, but there isn't an easy way to show you Discover content or indeed Snapchat content at all on the web browser. Um, 
But uh, essentially, what was interesting about it was it, it was sort of, sort of the ultimate test of whether the economist's DNA could be moved to a different platform. And what I've spent the past few years doing is figuring out what the economist looks like on different platforms. And you, because you can't just take a print article and splat it on, you know, onto a phone app and say it's a, a mobile product. So, so I made this mobile app called Espresso, which has a different kind of article format. It has 150 word articles and five of them a day. Similarly, what does The Economist look like in video? That's what Economist Films is meant to answer. And so Snapchat was just another one of these challenges. Can you really make a product that, um, a version, and, it didn't, and it's not the whole, you know, we do one subject a week in, um, in Snapchat. We do a deep dive into a particular subject. But it's this ultimate kind of, can you translate the DNA of the, of the brand uh, to, a, to a very different kind of platform? Um, and in the case of Snapchat, that you know, has worked, and we have shown that there is an appetite for coverage of things other than Kardashians um, in Snapchat Discover. Our most popular editions, uh, and I'm not allowed to give you any numbers, but, but you know, it is millions of, uh, of users, um, were for uh, an edition we did on North Korea, How Scared Should You Be, uh, towards the end of last year. And then we also did, in January of this year, we did an edition on um, how internet censorship works in China. And those were both extremely popular topics among um, the Snapchat audience, which you might be surprised by. And you know, about half of the, I think 65% of the readers we get are, uh, sort of like 40% are under 17, and sort of 80% are under, under 34. So it is, you know, it is a much younger audience than, uh, than you might think, I mean, for particularly the under 17s. And finding topics that, um, that we've covered that resonate with them is, is not easy. And some weeks, you know, we'll do marriage around the world, and Snapchat will say, why did you do do that, you know, people are married later, teenagers maybe aren't thinking about that. <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe that's true. Um, but anyway, so, so it, it is a, a, it's a very interesting uh, platform to work on. You get this fantastic analytics back end that shows you how, uh, you know, individual snaps are performing. Um, you, it is quite a lot of work to produce content for it because everything has to be animated and so on. But it is a, it is a very interesting um, experiment to, to take the brand out onto, onto new platforms like that. Um, so that's been a, uh, a change to our output in the past uh, year and we're now looking at how we can essentially take advantage of that new audience that we found um, and encourage people to go from the Snapchat edition to our website. You can't actually link from Snapchat so that's a bit of a tall order and um, we are developing a, what we're calling a stepping stone product that sits between, um, between Snapchat and, uh, and our main site. There have been a few, um, this might be a good time to mention, there have been a few uh, interesting uh, websites, just going back to this idea of the atom of news. So, um, so for Espresso, the atom of news is a 150-word uh, piece called a chunk. Um, but there have been a couple of sites that, have, that, have, that are doing some quite interesting things that have appeared recently. I don't know, how many people read Axios? Anyone here read Axios? Mm -hmm. So Axios is a very interesting site, founded by the, um, the co-founders of, um, of Politico, who then left Politico. And what's particularly interesting about it, I mean, it, it, it's interesting technically, uh, but it's also very interesting and worth reading because they have such incredible, Mike Allen here has such incredible access um, and sources inside the White House. So if you're watching the unfolding soap opera that is the Trump presidency, which now seems to have gone from one car crash a day to two car crashes a day, and we've had, we had two yesterday, and we've already had the first of today's car crashes, and we just know there's going to be another one. Uh, but anyway, and then, uh, you know, and wait till we, we see him going to the Middle East and putting his foot in it there. What could possibly go wrong? Um, but anyway, um, as well as just being gripping, because they have such good content, the way they're presenting it is, it, is an extremely interesting twist on 
which sort of what you know, it's an example of how news can evolve. If you look at, at Politico, uh, I mean, Politico did, um, you know, traditional. Uh, it's such traditional web-based journalism that they actually have a print edition as well. They went backwards from the web into print, uh, as it were. And you can, you know, if you look at a piece on Politico, it's a fairly standard. I mean, it's great content. I'm not criticising it in any way, but it's a it's a fairly standard sort of news article, um, and it will typically be a thousand, you know, eight hundred to a thousand words long. Um, if you look at Axios, it's they described it when they launched it as a, cro a cross between Twitter and The Economist. So they wanted it to be kind of very information dense in the way the economy is, but they wanted it to be a feed like Twitter. And they also wanted these sort of takeaways. So they write things with, they use lots of bold headings and lots of bullet points. It's tempting to think they've written it for someone like Donald Trump with a sort of famously short attention span. Um, but this is kind of, here's the story, here are the reactions. This is actually quite a long one. But what they quite often do is they'll, here we are, they'll, they'll summarize a story like this and they'll say why it matters in bold. Um, and that's much more efficient than saying, uh, analysts believe this development is important because at the beginning of a sentence you just go, why it matters. And then they often have another thing they have, there's why, why it matters. They often have, um, you know, on tap, so that's what's coming up next. Uh, what happens next, um, they'll so sometimes say things like, look smart. In other words, they give you the, um, what we call the cocktail party payload. So that's the kind of interesting fact. Here we are, the problem, the bottom line. Now look at these pieces, they're all incredibly short, and they're not even showing you all of them. So this one here, about, here we are, Senate Republicans on the Medicaid compromise. Um, if you want to read the whole thing, you click here, and the whole thing appears inside the feed. There, that's as long as it is. So it's really not very long. Um, and what's very, very interesting about these very, very short lumps um, is you can put them in a feed like this on a website, but you can also um, deliver them in other formats. So they, they're, you know, they're very obviously readable on a smartphone. You can imagine a, um, a smartphone app um, letting you scroll through these things. And they also work brilliantly in newsletters. So they, um, they take 10 of these things each day for, you know, so Mike Allen, who's the, um, the lead writer here, he has a, a newsletter that's absolutely gripping reading. Um, it comes out uh, first thing in the morning, DC time every day. And it's basically 10 of these items. And so the same 10 items are then put up on their, their site, but it works across all these delivery platforms. So that, that I think, is, is very, very interesting and is a, um, you know, a model that we could all learn from. We've actually started using what we call Axios style uh, in, in Snapchat. So when we, we, in Snapchat, you have these top snaps that you swipe through that are animated, and they're kind of like animated headlines. And some of the time, you, you, you just have a top snap that makes a point in, in a story and has a few facts or has a little animation or a little video. And other times, you have that, and then you swipe up and you get a, an article underneath. And some of the time, we can just put economist articles straight in as swipe ups. But a lot of the time, you want to take a particular point from a longer article, or you want to have a particular explanation. And so we quite often take that three or four paragraph chunk of an economist article and rewrite it in this Axios format, where you have a sort of either a Q&A format or you have bold headlines and so on. I think it's really important to make the point that um, a news organization that tries to differentiate itself solely on the basis of the presentation is going to fail. Because presentation styles can always be copied. And we only have to look at what Instagram is trying to do to Snapchat. They can copy all of those formats, but they can't, you know, they can't copy the culture of innovation that Snapchat has. So you know, we have to assume that Snapchat has more ideas up its sleeve, and, uh, and it's going to go into hardware, and it seems to have a different advertising model. And you know, who knows? But if you look at, here's another example. Um, well, if you, if you avoid Vox launch, Vox had these card stacks. And their big thing was going to be card stacks. And they've kind of gone a bit quiet on card stacks. But if card stacks had been totally awesome, 
we'd all have just made card stacks, and then you know Vox would not have had a, uh, an edge, um, and they'd have had to differentiate themselves on other things. And I think they have, in fact, managed to do that. So uh, now this is the, an interesting example. This is the outline. This is founded by Josh Topolsky, who um, left Bloomberg allegedly after Michael Bloomberg said to him. So he's running the website at Bloomberg, and Michael Bloomberg said to him. What I think is actually quite a good question. He said, why does Bloomberg have a website? Um, and it's really not clear to me why they do, because I know why The Economist has a website, because it's plausible, because we see it happening you know, hundreds of times a week, that people who come to a free website and read some articles and go, this is quite good, I'll subscribe to this. They may not say, I'll subscribe to this right away. They may have to you know, come back four or five times in the space of a month and go, you know, actually, I think this is worth paying for. We can convert some of those people from not paying to paying $150 you know, a month, uh, sorry, for a year for, um, for a subscription. Um, Bloomberg, if you want to sign up for a terminal, that'll be whatever it is, $22,000. And, and um, I think the idea that you're going to upsell people from a free website to, um, to a terminal seems, seems quite hard to believe. So I think the purpose of the website is to keep the Bloomberg brand um, in the sort of public discussion. And this is the way it's been explained to me before. Uh, by people at Bloomberg, so Dan Doctorock explained it to me this way, and this is also why they bought Business Week. It wasn't so much that they expect to upsell from the website and Business Week to the terminal, it's that if they're going to get the access they need to make the terminal business work, if they're going to get people to talk to them, then they need to have a public-facing brand so people have actually heard of them. Uh, and if they didn't have the website, they didn't. But, uh, they didn't have the magazine, then, um, then you know, CEOs would say, well, who are you? Um, but because they are the same people that make, uh, that make Business Week and, and also have this quite nice website, um, they are taken more seriously on the side of the business that really makes all the profit. Um, but then the question becomes, well, how, how you should then logically make that website as small and as cheap as you can get away with, even though they're you know, pulling in whatever it is, six billion a year in, um, in, uh, in, in profit, I think it is, isn't it? They're an amazingly powerful um, uh, news organization, a profitable news organization. Um, but this, the question then becomes, you know, have they over-expanded on the kind of consumer-facing side? And I think when Mike Bloomberg came back to the company, that seems to have been his calculation, which is, what's the right size for this business? Anyway, Josh Topolsky thought that his question, why do we have a website, which I think is actually a very good question, was an idiotic question. Uh, so he left. And he started, this, <laughs> he started this new website called The Outline. Um, and The Outline claims that it has a new business model that they will reveal in the future. Now, this sounds an awful lot to me like Donald Trump and his... Uh, infallible, uh, you know, it can't go wrong plan to defeat ISIS within 30 days, um, which seems to have disappeared without trace. Um, but apparently, this, um, this new website, it's not going to be based on obs obsessing over metrics like page views and, um, and, and other things. There doesn't seem to be a, any advertising on it. But, um, but anyway, some, for some reason, VCs have funded this. And uh, it does have this quite interesting presentation style, which is, um, so if I show it to you, because it's meant to be read on a mobile, right? It's mobile first. So uh, it's meant to be read like this. So when we go to here, you can see that it's essentially modeled on Snapchat. So this is like a top snap, where you have a picture and a little bit of text, and then you swipe up and you get the article. So it looks to me like this is a warm-up for going on to <coughs> Snapchat Discover, which you know, may well be what it is. Um, but apparently there's going to be a premium subscription layer to this too. I don't know. But here's my point again. If it turns out that this, this um, pseudo-Snapchat presentation is a really cool way of doing things, well, we'll all just copy it. Um, so you have got to differentiate yourself on the, 
um, on the content, um, particularly if we're going to try and charge a premium subscription in some form. Axios, incidentally, also says that its model, at the moment they have a little bit of native advertising in the newsletters, so they have uh, you know, five items in the newsletter which look like this, and then one of them, which is an advert, but looks like this, so it says, you know, now a message from whoever, um, and it's usually, you know, an oil company or something like that. So they have some revenue coming in there. What they say they're going to charge for is sort of super premium, by which they mean ten to twenty thousand dollar um, subscriptions, which they're going to sell to institutions. I'm not quite sure what they're going to be offering them. I noticed that Wired has started doing this as well. Um, in the US, they've started offering uh, sort of corporate subscriptions. And I know that in the UK, Wired has a sort of consulting arm where you can pay them to come in and, you know, you're a, you're a multinational company and you want to understand, you know, digital manufacturing. So you get them to come in and talk to you about the implications and stuff. And they send in a journalist, they get in an analyst from, you know, one of the big consultancies, they get a, you know, an academic who knows all about the cutting edge of robotics or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's possible that there is a sort of emerging um, crossover between consulting and subscription model out there. I don't know. That seems to be what these guys are, are looking at, and I think that's, that's very much uh, worth keeping an eye on. Um, anyway, that bit of a, a bit of a sidestep there, but I just wanted to kind of um, point out that the, uh, you know, part of the of the game here is not just keeping track of the business model; it's keeping track of the combination of the business model and the uh, and the sort of presentation style and the technology and the evolutions in the um, in you know how you how you package up the news. This kind of um, uh, atom of news stuff. Um, anyway, let's let's go on to uh, to fake news. Um, obviously, there's a lot of concern about it, and it's a very widely abused term uh, that means you know news I don't like for some people, and means out you know. Straight, straight up fraudulent news. You know, uh, uh, Trump uh, endorsed by the Pope. I think was one of the most famous stories last year. The, yes, the two most, the two most popular uh, news stories on Facebook uh, towards the end of the last year during the campaign were both fake. One of them was about Trump and said that he had been endorsed by the Pope. And the other was about Hillary and it said, said that she had been caught selling weapons to ISIS or something like that. Uh, anyway, both complete nonsense. Um, and uh, funnily enough, my take on fake news is that. Um, you know, there, are, there, are, there are many factors here, but weirdly it sort of goes back to the New York Sun and the beginning of the modern um, business model again. Because the New York Sun, having launched, the way it got its circulation up to 20,000 was by printing made-up news, by printing fake news. Um, and in particular, the, the uh, famous example of the, uh, the moon hoax. And this is where they published a series of stories over the course of a week that purported to be from a scientific journal um, published in Edinburgh, and it was supposedly the, the reports by John Herschel, who was a, an astronomer uh, at the time, who really did exist, and he'd gone to South Africa and built a very large um, telescope there, and in fact the, the district of Cape Town where he built it was, is called Observatory to this day, because that's where he built the observatory. Um, anyway, he was at the Cape observing the southern stars, and um, the New York Sun made up these reports that he had pointed the, the telescope at the moon and discovered aliens living there. And they discovered, they, it, uh, the reports described the uh, behavior of the aliens and what their architecture looked like and, and what all the different sorts of alien and what their customs were in great detail. And people just couldn't believe it. I mean, well, they, they did actually believe it. Um, they, and they queued up to, I mean, there would be, a, you know, the evening edition of the paper would be coming out. There would, people would be queuing up to buy it. Um, and this is what drove this. And, and whether or not they believed it, they just really wanted to read it. And a lot of people did believe it. And the, the other newspapers weren't quite sure what to do about this because they were getting killed in the marketplace. 
So they, um, they did that great trick where you, um, you reprint your opponent's story and you say, you know, we don't know if this is true or not, but you know, in the interests of uh, certain our readers, here it is. Um, and, uh, and then they started to debunk it. And one of the other, um, one of the other New York newspapers at the time, the Herald, um, fairly quickly it proved that this was all made up because the journal that the uh, stories were supposedly coming from had actually folded two years earlier. Um, so that was definitely not true. Um, and there were various sort of capers where people went round to the newspaper office and demanded to see copies of this journal. They were promised, oh yes, it's in a cupboard over here, and then the person looking for them would jump out of the window and run away. Uh, <laughs> and so it, was, it, was all, it was all rather cloak and dagger. But then what happened was that the, um, uh, the proprietor of the Herald um, discovered a much, much better source of, uh, of, of news that was, that, that was basically infinite, it was not fake, it was true, but had the same degree of human interest, and that was crime reporting. And this is something that they, people hadn't really cottoned onto before, um, but the Herald then led the way in sending reporters down to the courts of the police stations, and in fact, in some cases, going into crime scenes and doing reporting directly in the crime scene. Um, and that sort of, um, that combination of the debunking that happened to the Sun and the way it was exposed as having printed completely made up stories, and then the fact that a new source of uh, stories uh, were discovered meant that um, it, you know, printing fake news was revealed not to be a sustainable business model. And if you think about it, I mean, what had happened up to that point, if, what, if you look at the, you know, the earliest news publications, the pamphlets in the, in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, you quite often get these examples of pamphlets where they describe a, you know, a murder trial, and there's a gruesome description of the murder, and then, you know, the, uh, the proprietor is brought to justice, and there is a gruesome description of their execution. Um, and what printers used to do when they didn't have any work was they would just get these old stories out, change a few dates and names, and change, oh, it was in the city of Geneva. No, no, it was in the city of Lyon, and then it was a, it was a man, it was a woman, it would change the date, and then they printed again. And they would then use the, um, the Google and Facebook defense of, um, well, it may not be true, but we're just the distribution platform. Um, and uh, this was a kind of reliable uh, moneymaker. And, um, of course, the point about those pamphlets is that they were one-offs. So you have nothing to lose. You have no reputation to lose if you, you know, basically peddle completely fake stories. And what starts to happen when newspapers start to take off and want people to buy them and want people to buy them every day is they realise they have a reputation to defend. And this is a, this is a novelty. Um, so we haven't really noticed this, but it's sort of implicit in the, in the newspaper business model. One of the aspects of the newspaper business model what is a newspaper? What, what, what differentiates a newspaper from what came before? Well, it's having regular publication under the same name is one of the things that differentiates a, news, you know, a newspaper from a newsbook or a, uh, a pamphlet that came before. And if you are publishing regularly under the same name, you do need to protect your re reputation. Otherwise, unless you're the National Enquirer and your reputation is just to print nonsense all the time, um, then it is, going to, it is going to do you harm. And what we've seen happen recently with the, uh, with the fake news, the proliferation of fake news sites in Macedonia and things like this, um, is essentially that you can now fake, um, you know there are so many news, news sites in the world that you can't possibly have heard of all of them. You can now fake 50 quite plausible looking news sites. You can make up these stories, you can link to them on Facebook, and that mechanism, and it doesn't matter, I, think, I click through to, you know, they've got names like, uh, I don't know, America360news.com. Um, and you click through to that site, you've never heard of it, but it kind of sounds like it might be a news site. You see some bullshit story about um, Donald Trump and the Pope, and um, you, you know, you, your usual 
your usual means of judging whether this is real or not has been taken away from you. And even if you decide, oh, that's obvious nonsense, I'm never going to go to use the American 360, whatever it's called, again. Um, then that's no, that doesn't matter. They've got 50 other domain names. They'll fool you again tomorrow with something else if you've got your mad aunt posting this kind of stuff into your, your Facebook feed. So essentially, the decoupling of the discovery mechanism from the, um, uh, and the sort of proliferation of, of publishing, and the fact you can have lots and lots and lots of things that look like entire news publications and aren't, um, has, has meant that this mechanism that was one of the things protecting us from fake news for quite a, lot of for quite a long time, I mean, there were a lot of other things as well, you know, professionalization of journalism and so on. Um, but uh, one of the things was maintaining a reputation. There was an inbuilt mechanism in the business model not to print total nonsense mixed in with the truth. Um, and that's been, been taken away. The other perspective I have on fake news comes from my background as a, a technology writer. Um, and it's particularly apposite this week, I think. So this week, we've just seen this big um, cyber attack with ransomware affecting lots of computers around the world. And the, new, the, uh, the NHS, the impact on the NHS has been getting a lot of press, but actually is a very small part of the attack. Um, most of the victims seem to have been in Russia. Um, it's just the NHS example gives you a very vivid illustration of how a cyber attack can have life or death consequences, which is you know, not something that's happened uh, before. So what's this got to do with fake news? Well, people always sort of agonize about what's the, what do we do about cybersecurity? What's the, how do we secure? It's a big problem. And, uh, and you, what you have to understand about cybersecurity is it can never be fixed. We can never, ever make a secure system. It's like, how can we make a car that doesn't crash? Or how can we make a house that doesn't burn down? Or how can we prevent accidents? You can't do it. You have to have a kind of, um, you have to have defense in depth, as the cybersecurity people say. So yes, you have, to have, you have to have sensible tools. You have to you know, make the technology as good as you can, but accept that there are going to be things that go wrong. You have to have um, training of the users not to write their passwords down on post-it notes and stick them on their computers. Uh, not to use the same password on everything. Uh, not to believe people who bring them up and say, it's the IT department here, can you tell me your password? When in fact it isn't. Um, and if you, if you put all of these things together, uh, you can potentially do something about cybersecurity. You also have to just admit that sometimes things are going to fail. And then you need things like disaster recovery plans, mitigation strategies, insurance, you know, and you, you put all of those things together. But basically, computers are so complicated and they're built in so many layers that you can never secure all of them. And even if we could build a perfectly secure computer today, it would take 30 years for that new fantastic computer that I've just invented to ripple throughout the world and replace all the computers that are out there in the lifts and in the cars and in our pockets and on our desks and all the rest of it. Um, so we kind of accept that with, with cybersecurity. And we, we say, well, you have to update your patches, and you have to take things seriously, and you have to recognize that security is a chain and that human is always the weakest link. And how do you apply that to fake news? Well, I think we need the same kind of defense in depth. There isn't a silver bullet, technically. You could say, well, Facebook and Google, you could do more. And I think they could, and they are. And they're providing these mechanisms for, you know, is this a credible news source of Google News? Um, you can report things on Facebook that look a bit dodgy. And then when people share it, it'll say, a lot of people think this story might not be true. You can link up with fact checkers who can say, you know, this story's definitely been debunked. So there's a certain amount of technical stuff you can do. But even that technical stuff involves people working with machines. You can't, I mean, there's lots of AI people out there going, oh, we can definitely get machine learning to recognize fake news. I don't think so. Um, but, you know, or at least not any time in the near future. But, but um, then you're, you're building an AI. You're just trying to build a human who, you're trying to build human judgment. So you're going to need a combination of technical tools, um, social policy. So that means better news literacy, for example. Um, and just you know, generally making people aware of, of how these things these things work. 
Um, and, and so, so the answer, if there is an answer, um, is, well, so we have to accept we're never going to win. There's always going to be a certain amount of fake news. But we also have to be very sceptical about anyone who tells us that a particular technical solution is the answer, because um, we've, we've heard that for 15 years in cybersecurity, and it's just not true. Uh, but that's not to say technology is useless. It's just that it's only a, um, a small piece of the pie. Um, yeah, and the main thing is the fake news has been, you know, has been, this is probably a good place to finish, has been extremely good for um, when you are surrounded by fake news sites like America360news.com or whatever. Um, what do you do? This is what happened with food safety scandals a century ago. People look for brands. And the first brands were food brands because people were worried about food safety. And we're seeing the same thing now. Um, let's, let's retreat to the safety of brands that we know, like the New York Times, and The Economist has benefited from this too. Um, and uh, in that respect, uh, and probably only in that respect, I have to say thank you, Donald Trump. And thank you for listening. <laughs>